please pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Convict, convert, consecrate us, and make us wholly yours. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Two Sundays ago, immediately following his baptism in the River Jordan, Jesus headed out for 40 days in the wilderness. Last week, Abraham heard God's promise that his descendants would be strangers and foreigners in Egypt for 400 years. This morning, in our first reading, we encounter Moses at Mount Horeb at the end of a 40-year wilderness sojourn. In our second reading from 1 Corinthians, we hear about the Israelites' 40-year journey through that same wilderness. It's starting to look like a pattern. And the pattern should feel familiar because, after all, today we're in our own 40-day journey through the wilderness of Lent. See, these aren't just stories about God's great actions in the past. The Apostle Paul tells us these things took place as examples for us. They're images, they're types that point beyond themselves, that have a fulfillment beyond themselves. These things happen to them as an example, the apostle writes, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so this morning I want to look at these readings from Exodus and 1 Corinthians to try to discern what their time in the wilderness might tell us about our own. What is God doing here? I want to point out four things in particular. First of all, here in the wilderness, God is showing us who he is. We often think about the wilderness in terms of loneliness, barrenness, abandonment. This is part of the imagery of the wilderness. It's a desert place. Often that's our experience. Moses is here because he fled Egypt. He's in exile from his family in the place of his birth. The people of Israel have been told about the land of promise, but they're still waiting for that. They haven't arrived yet. Often the wilderness time feels like a waiting time. These are seasons of longing when we haven't arrived. And all of that is true. But what we see in both of these readings is that God is also present in the wilderness. And the wilderness sometimes in a particular way is the place where God is making himself known. In the third chapter of Exodus, Moses is just minding his own business, tending sheep. But then he sees something unfathomable, a bush on fire, but not consumed by fire. He says, I gotta take a look at this thing. And he approaches and a voice speaks from the flames, the voice of a God who knows Moses and calls him by name, Moses, Moses. A God who makes his own name and identity known. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is a God who sees. I was struck this week by the way in which this whole passage is playing with language of looking and seeing. Moses turns aside to see this great sight. God sees that Moses has turned aside to see. 
Then God speaks and reveals his holiness and Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. But God still sees Moses. I suspect Moses hasn't felt particularly seen by God. He's been in the desert for 40 years. And I'm quite sure that God's people are wondering at this point if he sees them. After all, we're slaves in Egypt. If he cared what's happening to us, he would do something, surely. But the moment Moses hides his face and turns away, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. He's not blind to their suffering. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. He's not deaf to their lamentations. I know their sufferings, the Lord says, and I have come down. The wilderness is not a place of divine absence, even if it sometimes feels that way. If you're in the wilderness, it doesn't mean that God is further away. In fact, it's only because Moses has been driven into the wilderness that he's able to have this encounter with God and discover that God really does see and hear and know and come down. First, God comes down in this burning bush on Mount Horeb, and then he's going to come in the midst of Egypt itself to deliver his people out of the hand of the Egyptians, he says, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This God we meet in the wilderness is not just a God who sees, in other words, he's a God who acts on behalf of those who belong to him. And this is an essential part of God's self-revelation. At the end of our Exodus reading, Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And God reveals to Moses the divine name. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Okay, that's a bit mysterious. But then God adds another name. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants know themselves as the people who belong to the Lord. But here the Lord chooses to be known as their God. They belong to him, but he belongs to them too. This is my name forever, God says, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations by whose God I am. In the wilderness, first, God is showing us who he is, but in doing so, secondly, he's also showing us who we are. We're the ones God sees and hears and knows and has come down to deliver. St. Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When the chosen people passed through the Red Sea beneath that pillar of cloud and fire, for the apostle that's an image, it's a type of the waters of baptism overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Here the people of God are signed and sealed. They're known and called by name. They're given a new identity. Here they come to know themselves as those who belong to the Lord and to whom the Lord belongs. If we went straight to the land of promise, we might start to imagine that we're sustaining ourselves. But here in the wilderness, God shows us that we only survive because we're sustained and draw our being from him. 
They all ate the same spiritual food, St. Paul says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's an image or a type of the Eucharist. In the wilderness, we're strengthened for the journey. We're given grace to begin to live into our true identity. By sustaining and feeding us with himself, God is showing us who we are who we belong to and who belongs to us. But in the wilderness, God also shows us something else about ourselves. He shows us our disordered desires. Paul continues in the fifth verse, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were scattered. And that could mean literally God scattered them, but it could also be describing the way they became scattered inwardly and lost sight of the God who sees. As Romans puts it, because they failed to honor him as God, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were overthrown not so much by the dangers and difficulties of the wilderness, but by their own disorderly wandering hearts. These things took place as examples for us, St. Paul says, that we might not desire evil as they did. Ouch. Instead of eating and drinking from their spiritual rock, they sat down to eat and drink and gorge themselves at the table of idolatry. They turned from the love of this covenant-making God to fornication and sexual promiscuity. Instead of holy lamentation crying out for God to act, they put him to the test it says. And when God spoke and made his name and presence and power known, they drowned out his voice with their own grumbling and complaining. And so they were overthrown. They were scattered. They were struck down by serpents and destroyed by the destroyer. They fell before the enemy of their souls. Friends, the wilderness is a dangerous place. But so we're clear, the danger of the wilderness is not primarily out there. It's in here, in the desert wastelands of our own hearts. There's an important point here, by the way, about baptism in the Holy Eucharist. As Anglican Christians, we hold the sacraments in profoundly high regard. These are God's instruments of life and means of grace to us. But the sacraments are not a magic bullet. We still have to receive them in faith. Our spiritual forefathers are baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and they ate and drank of the spiritual rock, which was Christ. And nevertheless, many of them were overthrown and died in the wilderness. The apostles warning us, it's possible to receive the sign, but still refuse to accept the grace. Here in the wilderness, the Lord is showing us our disordered desires all the ways we lose sight of who we truly are because we reject who God truly is. Think about it. Why did they test the Lord? Why do we? Because we don't really believe that he sees us. We grumble because we no longer believe that we're truly being heard. We turn away and search for other opportunities to satiate our longings, to satisfy our yearnings, because we don't trust that God actually knows the desires of our hearts. 
We make idols our source of purpose and identity because we need a God who's right here with us and we don't trust the Lord who tells us that he's come down to deliver and bring us up to a good land because we want a God who belongs to us on our terms, not so much on his. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, God leads us into the wilderness out there in order to deliver us from the wilderness in here. He shows us who he is. He shows us who we are in him. He shows us our disordered desires so that fourth and finally, he can strengthen us to stand against temptation. The Apostle Paul warns us, but he ends with a word of encouragement here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is, what, absent? Distant? Standing back waiting to see how we do? No. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, the phrasing there always strikes me as a bit peculiar. I hear way of escape and I think, oh great, that means I can get away and not be tempted anymore. That's not actually what the scripture says. It says with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. That's a little weird. But I'm reminded of a story from the sayings of the Desert Fathers about a young fourth century monk named John who asked the Lord to remove all temptations from him. Please just let me not deal with temptation anymore. And he told his Abba, his spiritual director, about this. And his Abba rebuked him. Here's what he said. It is by warfare that the soul makes progress. It is by warfare that the soul makes progress. Does that mean we should seek out temptation? Should we deliberately put ourselves in its pathway? No, God forbid. Flee from sin. But what that older monk understood is that the wilderness is a battleground. It's a place of testing. It's a place of training. It reveals what's disordered in our hearts, but it's also the place where our hearts can be healed. As the late Bishop Donald Parsons once wrote, temptation is a challenge to decision and the outcome can be good. Let me say that again. Temptation is a challenge to decision, and the outcome can be good. To be disheartened and condemn ourselves because temptation comes is to defeat ourselves before the battle really begins. How often do we do that? But God in the wilderness is strengthening us to stand against temptation. Now, this is important. We're never going to win this victory in our own strength. Again, St. Paul warns us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. When God calls Moses, Moses answers, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And notice what God does not say. God doesn't say, now Moses, don't be so hard on yourself. You got this. God doesn't actually disagree with Moses' self-evaluation. What God does is provide the missing piece of the equation that Moses isn't seeing. But I will be with you. 
You may have seen those posters or the, the memes on social media, God will never give you more than you can handle. They're probably thinking of this verse from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's not quite what the scripture says. Moses is definitely getting more than he can handle and he knows it. But what's true is that God will never give you more than God can handle. Yes, Moses, but I will be with you. That's what makes the difference. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. This morning, we're in the midst of Lent. We find ourselves in the wilderness. But brothers and sisters, we don't journey through this desert alone. The Lord goes with us, a cloud of covering, and a fire of protection, and a rock from which spiritual water flows. Here in the wilderness, God sees us and makes himself known. He shows us who he is. He shows us who we are. He shows us our disordered desires. He lets us come face to face with temptation, but he also strengthens us to stand against it so that our desires can be healed. God takes us into the wilderness to deliver us from the wilderness. He calls us by name. He sets his name upon us and makes us holy. He sustains us. He gives us himself. He strengthens our hearts and he opens our eyes. Till we don't have to hide our faces in shame anymore. Till we don't have to be afraid to look at God. Because we ourselves have been transfigured and made signs of his presence like a bush that's burning and not consumed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.